Well, let me have you take your Bibles out. Stay standing for a few moments as we turn our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, to chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1. We will begin reading right at the beginning and read down through verse 13. We'll be looking particularly this morning at verses 9 through 13, but we'll begin in verse 1. So the first 13 verses of Mark's gospel, let us give heed to this. This is God's word to us this morning. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again for your most wonderful word. We thank you for this time that we have to to spend time in your word, and we pray that you would bless he who preaches and we who hear. And may your spirit open our hearts, open our ears, Father, that we may hear what you have for us this morning through this word, this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we are still freshly into our study of Mark's gospel. So those of you who are visiting with us this morning... Um, If you were going to be around for a while, you would be able to follow right along with us basically from the beginning. Uh, This is the earliest of the Gospels, Mark's Gospel is. And as we've mentioned several times, but I'll repeat it for the sake of those who are newly joining with us, Mark's Gospel particularly presents Jesus not only as the king over all kings and not just as the son of God, although those are an, an essential part of Mark's presentation, a part of Mark's gospel, but also he presents him as the preeminent and anointed servant of God. A servant sent from God, a servant on a mission, and as fulfilling that mission. And Mark's focus is on how Jesus fulfilled that 
not so much focusing on the teaching and the preaching of Jesus, but especially through his actions, through what he did. This gospel presents Jesus as quickly moving, moving from one encounter to the next and shows us really as our Lord as a man of action, a servant of action. But as we are in the gospel here, we have not yet even been introduced really to Jesus, except in the very first verse as the, the subject to, of this account that Mark has written, where he said in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But that's all we've, we've heard about Jesus so far. But Mark has first introduced us to another man, another man that was sent from God as well. This one was sent to be the forerunner of Jesus, a herald an announcer, a proclaimer, a forerunner, sent to announce the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, the Son of God. And that herald's name was John, whom we all know as John the Baptist. Now that's not because he was a member of any Baptist denomination, uh, but it was because of the thing for which he was most well known. And that was that, well, as Mark says in verse 4, that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That John, coming on the scene, was calling people to repentance in light of the fact that the Lord was coming and baptizing them as a symbol of that forgiveness, of that repentance. And he proclaimed in his preaching this one who was to come after him, this Messiah, this anointed one, the one that John said is mightier than I. He said, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I am nothing. He is God. And now, this morning in Mark's gospel, Mark, Mark's record of, of the good news coming to mankind, now we are introduced to this one who was to come. Very quickly, a, a very brief section there on John the Baptist sort of preparing the way. And now we quickly move on to the coming of Jesus on the scene. And again, this is in a very brief form. With, according to Mark's style, relatively few details especially when we look at the, the other accounts of these things in, in Matthew and Luke and John. And just before we, we get to that, just before we get into the text and thinking about the way that Mark presents this gospel, let me give you just a, a, just a quick thing about how I want to approach our study of Mark's gospel as we move forward. As I've mentioned, we talked about it quite a bit in the introduction and, and last week, and, and even made note of it this morning, the pacing aspect of Mark's gospel, the quickness and the brevity with which Mark presents these accounts of the ministry of, of Christ, that is an aspect of the purpose of his writing, and part of the way that he intended, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to present his gospel, his record of Christ. He intends to present it in this very quick-moving, uh, highlight reel, as we talked about, uh, method of presenting this. And I want us to, to try to hold on to that pacing as much as we can as we go through the book. 
So although we could take each of these, these events, these vignettes in the ministry of Christ and, and try to draw them out fully and in every case go to all of the, the other Gospels and, and fill in all of the gaps, I want to avoid that or at least minimize it so we get, as we go through this study, we, we get the flavor of the way Mark is presenting his Gospel. Now, we'll certainly need to get some additional details to understand and to have a good understanding of what's going on. We'll need to get some insights from the other Gospels as well as other places. But I do want to move through the events as quickly as Mark intended, or as much as we may in light of the fact that we are going to be taking this in you know, 45 minute or so chunks. So this morning we're going to look at Two events in the life of Christ. The first two that Mark records here, and that is Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Both events that we could, and if we were in one of the other Gospels, probably would spend a whole Sunday or more on each of those. But we'll take them both this morning as Mark treats them both very briefly. We'll... we'll branch out to those for understanding, but, but try to keep it moving, as Mark does in the, the brevity with which he treats these things. So two things, but in, but in looking at them, I think we see four important aspects of this introduction of Jesus that Mark has. Um, as he introduces us to this anointed servant of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the object of the good news that he is beginning to tell us here. Four things as Mark moves from the herald of the Messiah that we saw last week to the introduction of the Messiah that we see today. And those four things that we're going to see are the baptism of Christ, the anointing of Christ, the approval of Christ, and the temptation of Christ. We start with the baptism of Christ. In verse 9, Mark moves quickly from his introduction and his description of the important work of John the Baptist in general uh, to what is really the introduction of Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah himself. We read in verse, one, in verse 9, in those days, we'll stop there for just a moment, what days are those? Well, they're the days when John was baptizing, when John was doing his ministry in the wilderness at the Jordan River. It's those days when he was speaking about the one who was to come, whom he, John, was not worthy to even do the most menial service for. So great was this one who was to come. It is in those days, uh, Mark writes, that Jesus, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Mark, Mark mentions and again, without background, without preparation, he says Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And that identifies to us, in a first century way, which Jesus he's talking about. Jesus is the, the Greek version of the, the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. And it was an extremely popular name in this place and at this time. And as I think we mentioned last week, people didn't have last names back then. So this was a way to identify this Jesus more specifically, this one who was to come, the one who did come, the one who this gospel is about. And, of course, the other gospel writers give us more background 
on who this Jesus is who came from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, the Jesus' uh, mother and earthly father, Joseph, were from Nazareth, a city up in the northern part of, of Palestine, of Israel, just southwest of the Sea of Galilee. A very insignificant little village. But you'll remember that when the census was called that we read about in the beginning of the, the birth narrative of Jesus, that Joseph and Mary had to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, to the city of David. And there Mary gave birth to Jesus. From there, the family fled into Egypt for a time, being warned by an angel about Herod's attempt to kill Jesus. And then finally, after hearing that Herod had died, they return, and they end up going back to Nazareth where Jesus lived, where Jesus was, was raised and, as far as we know, stayed, worked with his father Joseph for some time as a carpenter, and remained there, as far as we know, until this time. We don't have information about those, those intervening years. But he was there in Nazareth, and he came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth is a city, Galilee is the region. And he came and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now Matthew shows us something that is important, and that is the intentionality of this. Um, John, or Mark says that, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. But Matthew shows us more when he says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. He came with that purpose. Jesus, we will see, is always conscious of his purpose. Always conscious, always moving, always working to accomplish that purpose. He never just sort of meandered. He never sort of purposelessly did things. And he never took a vacation. But Mark says that he came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And Mark leaves it at that. But we do have to take a moment and answer the question that often comes up in response to reading this and that John himself even raises in a way. And that is, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Why should this the superior baptizer, the one who John said, John the Baptist said, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, why would he himself have to be baptized? Especially when, when as John said, John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism was, according to verse 4, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus didn't have any sin to repent of, did he? No, he didn't. And Jesus didn't have any sin to, to need to be forgiven for, did he? Absolutely not. Well, then why did he have to be baptized? Well, here's why. And Matthew gives us part of the answer. Remember that Jesus came to John to be baptized, and John, recognizing him, coming and coming for baptism, John said, whoa, wait a minute there. This is, this is kind of backwards. 
He says, I really need to be baptized by you. We need to switch places. You need to be doing the baptizing to me, not me baptizing you. But Jesus, remember, said, this is how it needs to be. This is the Father's plan. He said, by doing this, we are fulfilling all righteousness in Matthew 3.15. And it was in doing this and submitting to, to baptism, and, and specifically a baptism that was proclaimed as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, we see Jesus in submitting to that, that he is already identifying himself with sinners. He is identifying himself with his people. Those he came to save as the sin-bearing Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist described him. In a sense, Jesus is already beginning his redemptive work and putting himself in the place of sinners to which John's baptism specifically pointed. Jesus came from Nazareth, joining the the great crowds from Judea and from Jerusalem who recognized their sins and came and were baptized. And so Jesus is a part of this crowd of sinners, not a sinner himself, but willingly identifying with them. Not because he had any sin of his own, but because as the Lamb of God, A phrase, by the way, remember, that takes us all the way back to the Passover in Egypt where the blood of the sacrificed lamb turned away the angel of death and the wrath of God. But because he was beginning his ministry of being among sinners, being counted as one of them, and ultimately dying on the cross and putting himself in their place, bearing the just wrath of God against sin. And here... In obedience to God, through John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus begins his earthly ministry by demonstrating obedience in all things and willingly putting himself in the place of sinners. There's an an illustration. Uh, I can't remember who who gave the illustration right now. But he mentioned that there had been all all of these people coming, all of these sinful people coming to the river and were being baptized by John for the washing away of their sin. And it's as if all of those sins were then in the, in the river. And now Jesus comes and has that same water put on him, identifying himself with sinful humanity. And so Jesus' baptism here really stands tall as his introduction. At the beginning of his ministry, showing why he came. And so it is that he not only submitted to it, but he insisted on it. That's all we'll say about the baptism of Jesus. We'll move on to the anointing of Christ. This action of Jesus coming and submitting himself to to baptism and being identified with sinners was an act of utmost humility by the perfect, sinless, eternal, infinite Son of God. A part of Jesus' life of humility, which had begun even before that. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He says, even to the point of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And including what we see here. But the response to this act of Christ is anything but simple. Anything but humble. It is a glorious and magnificent response. And it comes, to use Mark's word, as we know, one of his favorite words, immediately. When he came up out of the water, verse 10 begins, straight away after he was baptized. He went down into the river to be baptized, and then he came up out of the water. And this event occurred. There was no doubt that the two were connected. And Mark gives us then a very graphic record of what took place. Another hallmark of Mark's gospel, the vividness. He gives us of what took place. Three things, actually, that took place. First, we read that immediately, again, the first of 41 times he's going to use that word in this gospel. Immediately, he saw, look at verse 10, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Again, as soon as he came up out of the water, he stepped into the river to be baptized. He came up out of the water when he was done. Now, by the way, that phrase does not say anything about how he was baptized. Whether he was dunked in the river or had water poured on him or sprinkled on him, that's not the point. He was baptized the way that John was baptizing everyone. And as he came up, as he stood on the banks after being standing in the river, he saw, Mark says, That refers to Jesus. Jesus saw. He's not the only one that saw. John John the Apostle records that John the Baptist saw it as well in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 32. And it's likely that everyone there saw what took place. This was primarily intended for Jesus himself, but certainly had an intense effect on everyone around who saw it. There had been lots and lots of people who had gone down into that river to be baptized by John, and when they came out, they were wet. And that was it. But here, something remarkable happens. He saw, Mark says, heaven opened. But he doesn't just say that, does he? In some translations, they translate it that way. But but the ESV and, and others rightly... Get, get the sense of this different word that Mark uses here. The, the heavens were not just opened. Mark uses a different word and says that he saw the heavens being torn open. That's vivid, isn't it? He saw them being ripped apart. The sky being riven. What a great word picture. The heavens, the sky was ripped open. You know, there was a prophecy back in Isaiah 64 where Isaiah, after reflecting on the sad state of God's people, the prophet says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's a picture of what happens here. This is not the sort of 
cartoonish representation of, of curtains in the sky being pulled aside uh, and being drawn back. This is the sky cracking open, being torn apart, revealing the throne of God Almighty. It's interesting that this verb that's used here is used twice in Mark's Gospel. Here at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and again at the end of it. When Jesus is crucified and at his death, we read that, that signifying the importance of what had happened, signifying the extent of what had happened, signifying the, the acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, we read that the curtain of the temple... That thickly woven curtain that separated the place of the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, from the, from the rest of the temple. We read that the curtain of the temple was torn. It was ripped. Ripped in two from top to bottom. And it's also interesting that in both of those instances, that action is immediately followed by an exclamation of Jesus as the Son of God. At the end of the gospel, it's done by one of the most unlikely of characters, a Roman centurion, who said, truly, this was the Son of God. But here, in Mark, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's said by someone else, and we'll leave that for just a few moments before we say who that was. Because before that, as, as the sky is shredded before him, he sees something else. Again, verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What is that about? Well, in the Old Testament, among the various callings that, that God gave to different people within the nation of Israel... There were three particular jobs, callings, that, that emerged as most critical, as most important. And men that, that God called to those three jobs, those three offices, were marked out particularly for, for that work that God had called them to do. They were set apart to that work through a special ceremony in which a very special oil was poured over their head. And this pouring out of this oil onto these men was a symbol not only of, of God's choosing of them and setting them apart to this work, his choice of those men to their office, but it was symbolic of the Holy Spirit being given to these men by God in a special way to equip them for that work. The important work to which they were called to do in the service of God's people. And these men in these offices, uh, one group of them spoke for God. Spoke for God to the people, especially to the kings of the nations. And so they certainly needed to be equipped by God. Another group performed the, the, the rituals in the tabernacle and the temple and dealt with things like the sacrifices and such. And then the third ruled over the people protected the nation, provided for the nation. And these offices were the offices of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And the ceremony, this, this ceremony setting them apart and symbolizing the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit was known as anointing. 
Beloved, what we are looking at in Mark here at the end of verse 10 is Jesus' anointing. This was his anointing. This was his ordination, we might say today. And Jesus, who, whom John had said, had been saying, would, would baptize others with the Holy Spirit, was himself baptized first in the water, but then with that same Spirit here at the beginning of his ministry. We learn from our study of scriptures that Jesus is the fulfillment of all three of those offices from the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's a prophet in that he gives us the word of God. And uniquely, as John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, he is the word of God. He is the word. He's also the priest, our high priest, who serves in bringing us to God. He serves in providing the one sacrifice that was necessary that we might be able to come to God. And uniquely, that sacrifice was himself. And he is the king of the church. He is the one with authority over the church. He, he, he bought the church. And so he provides for the church. He builds the church. He protects the church. And in this ceremony, if you will, initiated with the rending of the heavens, it identifies Jesus as the anointed one, the Messiah, which means the anointed one. He who had been promised throughout the Old Testament. And he had been promised. And it was particularly said that this one who would come would be filled with the Spirit, who would have, would have the Spirit. Isaiah 11 it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah 42, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, this is God speaking, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then one more, Isaiah 61, in verses 1 and 2. The Messiah himself speaks in this verse, in these verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And that last one, of course, was quoted by Jesus himself in John 1.32. After he read that, he put the, the scroll away, handed it back after he had read it, and said to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The anointing of the Messiah. Now, another question arises, similar to the question about why Jesus needed to be baptized. The question here is, why did Jesus need to be anointed? Why did he need to be, particularly the aspect of anointing that speaks of, of the, the sign of enabling and empowering by the Spirit? Why did he need that? Why did the Spirit have to come down onto Jesus other than to identify him as the Messiah? He's, he's God in the flesh. Why did he need help? 
And indeed, as our catechism says, he, as a member of the the triune Godhead, is equal in power and glory with the Father and the Spirit. So why would he need then to be equipped by his own essential being in another person, by the Spirit coming upon him? Well, here's the answer to that. Jesus, when he was made man took to himself not just the appearance of a human nature, like the Gnostics claimed, but a true body and a reasonable soul, a human soul. And this human nature, which Christ took to himself, a nature like ours in every way except sin, was in need of strengthening for, the, for such a heavy task as he had undertaken. And the, and the Father provided the Spirit to strengthen him that he could fully function in his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. By the way, this was true of Jesus Christ in his incarnation and in his ministry that the Spirit came upon him and strengthened him for the work that he was to do. But listen here, especially those of you who are from this area. It does not then follow that because we are also given the Holy Spirit that then we can do what Christ did. There's a teaching of of the hyper-charismatics, even a church in our area, who says that very thing. But Paul tells us that we are given the manifestation of the Spirit as he apportions, as he parts out, as he divides to us each one, he says, individually, as he wills. But to Jesus, we are told that God gives the Spirit without measure. So the heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends on Christ, anointing him for his ministry. But there's still more. And this comes via a verbal word from heaven, from his Father, from the Creator himself. And in it we hear the approval of the Messiah, which is our third point. As if things couldn't get any more glorious here on the banks of the Jordan River this day, we now hear from God the Father himself, who speaks. Verse 11 says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The proclamation of God the Father that this one, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, is the divine only begotten Son of God Most High, the Messiah. He is the one who is spoken of in Psalm 2 where God says, I have set my king on Zion. You are my son. I will make the nations your heritage. The one spoken of in Psalm 110 where he tells the son, rule in the midst of your enemies. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. And he is God's beloved son. He says there, you are my beloved son. A beautiful reference to the perfect, infinite love among the members of the Godhead. The son of God, this son of God is also the servant of God. 
And as the servant of God has now come to humanity, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as he in the fullness of time has been born and now in Mark's record has come and entered faithfully and humbly into his public ministry, that Father and Son and Spirit know is going to come to a climax on a Roman cross in just a few years outside of Jerusalem. The Father, through the splintered sky, speaks and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Don't we look forward to that being said of us? That God is well pleased. Enter into the blessings that have been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. But he tells the Messiah, he tells his son, I am well pleased with you. Pleased at your willingness to come. Pleased at your humility. Pleased at your willingness to undertake this cosmic mission of redemption to save sinful people. Before we move on from that, I should also mention that, that in these two verses we have a most powerful proof for the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, especially a proof against an ancient but still contemporary heresy that sees God as, as one in essence and one in person, and that he variously manifests himself at one time as the Father, at another time as the Son, at another time as the Holy Spirit. An ancient heresy known as Sabellianism or modalism. But here we see the proof against that. We see all three persons of the Godhead. All present in a single historical moment, but in clearly different positions. We have the Son standing on the banks of the River Jordan. We have the Holy Spirit descending through the sky to, as Matthew says in his Gospel, uh, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And then we have the Father speaking from heaven through that ripped hole in the sky. Speaking to another person, calling that other person his son, addressing him as son, which makes him be referring to himself as his father, and telling him, you are my son and with you I am well pleased. And in that we see the approval of the Messiah. So we've seen the baptism of the Messiah and the anointing of the Messiah, the approval of the Messiah. Finally, let's look at verse 12 and see the temptation of the Messiah, as Mark records it. I say that because it's quite different than as the other gospel writers presented, as Matthew and Luke presented. Not different as in contrary, but different as in terse, slight. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. If you know that, that account, you know that there are a lot of things that aren't in there. But let's see what is in there. The first work, the first impulse of the Spirit in the ministry of Christ after so gently, as it were, descending in the form of a dove and lighting on Christ. And the next thing that we read is that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. 
It's time for action. It's time for things to be done. It's time to get this work going. And we read again that, he imme- that immediately this takes place. And immediately the Spirit drove him. Again, very strong visual images from Mark. The sky is torn. Now the Spirit drives him. Now, we don't want to take that idea of the Spirit driving Christ into the wilderness and think that it means something that the Spirit was like forcing Jesus to do something that he didn't want to do. If that were the case, the Father would not have been able to say that he was well pleased with his Son, but he was. Drove here is likely meant to add vividness, to add to the drama and the seriousness of Jesus being compelled to go. But where is he going? Mark says, out into the wilderness. But he was already in the wilderness, wasn't he? That's where John was. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing. Jesus had come to him into the wilderness. I think that what we see here is that that Jesus is, is driven further away, away from the crowds that were around John out to a a more desolate area. Jesus' mission led him into a place of of ultimate isolation and ultimate dependence on his Father and the Spirit who had just come upon him. And Mark's record here, as I said, is, is amazingly sparse compared with the other gospel writers. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. There's no reference to the specific temptations that the other writers include. There's no reference to the back and forth between Jesus and Satan. And surprisingly, there is not even a mention of Jesus' victory over the devil that we have in the other other Gospels. No mention of Satan's departure at the rebuke of Christ, sort of bringing that to an end. Instead, we're told that he he was in the wilderness. Now, if you were with us last week and the week before, it's interesting, here's that that word again, the wilderness. Again, an, an important concept in these opening verses of Mark's gospel. And this idea that Mark is presenting, uh, the idea of, of a second exodus It's emphasized here that Jesus was in the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, again, if you remember, I mentioned in our introduction that the wilderness in the Old Testament particularly was a place of of deliverance, it was a place of revelation, it was a place of repentance, and it was a place of testing of God's people and of God's prophets. And the 40 days in the wilderness here is important and has hooks that would have been immediately evident to the people who would would read this. Because Moses was in the wilderness on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, for 40 days. Elijah was in the wilderness, according to 1 Kings 19.18, for 40 days. And of course... God's people in the first exodus were in the wilderness for 40 years, which is described in in Hebrews as 40 years of testing. And it's the same Greek word that Mark uses here and is translated tempted. 
By the way, as Jesus is reported in Matthew and Luke as being in the wilderness for 40 days and fasting during that time, it's interesting that in both Moses' situation and Elijah's situation, that they too are in the wilderness for 40 days, also without food, also provided for by God. So the parallels of Jesus' time in the wilderness being without food and being tested is just chock full of these parallels with God's work in the Old Testament and in his prophets in the Old Testament. Even without the details of the temptations that the other gospel writers give us. And Mark is the one that has recorded this without those other details. But mentioning the wilderness twice in these verses right here. One other note here on the the wilderness. As with Moses and Elijah and the Israelites in the wilderness, the idea of the wilderness is always a, a place of danger. It's always a place where God's prophets and God's people were of necessity reliant upon God and his provision. The wilderness was a a proving ground, a picture of a test of faithfulness and a promise of deliverance. Those are the same contrasts that are present in Jesus' temptation. Because in the wilderness, Jesus is both tempted by Satan and sustained by angels, as we read in verse 13. And so in these verses, and again, we're not going to go to those other gospels and pull in all of these other things, because Mark has given us what he wants us to see. And in these verses, as Mark presents this episode, especially without the resolution that the other writers give with Christ banishing Satan for another time, and and Mark kind of leaves that open-ended, I think in that we are reminded that Christ's battle with the powers of darkness did not end when he returned out of the wilderness and began his public ministry. In fact, it had only begun. He was constantly fighting that battle for us. Even the other gospel writers tell us that at the end when Jesus told the devil, be gone, we read that the devil departed from him until an opportune time. Until the next time that he could come and try to detract Christ from his work. But of course he didn't. He was not detracted. He was not distracted. But he set his eyes ultimately on Jerusalem. And he went and defeated the devil at all points and at all times until finally that time on the cross when he ultimately triumphed over him. Christian, you can take great comfort from these words of Mark this morning. By this reminder that that the one in whom you have placed your trust has with divine intent undertaken to redeem you. That he has been made like you. He has shared in your weaknesses. Sin accepted. He has surrounded himself with sinners who if they hate you know that they hated him first. He has submitted himself as the God-man to the law of God and has in your flesh, in your nature, Christian, fulfilled every jot and tittle of God's law concerning God and man. That he 
not just in his baptism, but throughout every moment of his life, from the manger to the cross, fulfilled all righteousness. That that righteousness could be credited to you. Christ has fully and completely fulfilled the will of God for you and in your place, that you may rest in the knowledge this morning that by faith you are acceptable to God in Him. Rejoice in in the knowledge that Christ's service on your behalf has been declared to be well-pleasing to God the Father. By the rending of the sky and a proclamation from heaven at one end of His ministry and at the other, after He had finished His work of redemption, God proclaimed it again by raising Him from the dead. Take encouragement and find zeal in your own service from the knowledge that the same Spirit that descended upon our Lord to enable Him for His ministry is in you, is given to you, and enables you in your life of service to God. And so let us, this morning, beloved, as the Father was, let us be well pleased in our Savior. Let us be well pleased with the blessed Son of God who did all of this for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ. We we thank you simply. We thank you weakly. But we thank you honestly, Lord, that you have sent your Son for us, that you have sent your son to fulfill what we could never fulfill, to do what we could not do. And we thank you for Mark's record that we have looked at this morning. We thank you that you have sent your son, that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. He is the provider of the righteousness that we need. We thank you for these things. We pray that you would help us as we seek to live out what you have so graciously given to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.